Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a long-expected party celebrating the Lord of the Rings films nigh 20 years hence. Usually we work through the films one scene at a time, but this is some other devilry. The story of Middle-earth is deeply tied to the bonds of fellowship our characters hold, and we want to do episodes that allow us to delve greedily into them to show their quality. And Rohan will answer. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweedin. Today's episode is Fourth Aeorlingus, an analysis and discussion of Theoden King and his nephew Eomer. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We won't be doing any recaps today, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we'll also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Rohan. It begins in Rohan. Well, actually, very little (laughs) begins in Rohan, but it is a nice line in the film, so we'll take that. Rohan, as we've kind of begun to cover on this podcast so far, is an interesting state in the history of Middle-earth, mostly in that it's really, really young. I've gone into detail, a lot of detail, probably too much detail, about how Rohan was founded, and it is, of course, a story I really like telling, but it's an very, very many episodes preceding this, so I'm not going to retread that ground. Instead, we'll just do a brief overview of the Kingdom of Rohan, or the Rittermark, or just plainly the Mark, and then we'll get into some of the meat of the characters. So, Rohan. Geography. Where is it? What is it? Why does it look like that? Rohan is the kingdom that encompasses the uh, former Gondorian region of Kalinarathon, um, or the, the Green Plains, uh, as it means in Sindarin. Um, and that really encompasses all of the land from the mountains in the south, which is the Arid Nimrace, or the White Mountains, to the river, which is the River Anduin. Um, and Rohan as a kingdom is split in half by the River Entwash, um, or in Sindarin, it's like the Onodlo, I think it is. Um, the north and eastern side of Rohan is called the Eastamnet, um, and then the south and western side is called the Westamnet. Uh, the Westamnet is split um, in half, uh, respectively, through uh, Edoras, which sits in the middle, uh, between the Eastfold and, of course, the Westfold. Um, and the Westfold, as we all well know from the films, encompasses Helm's Deep. Um, Rohan, by virtue of being such a new kingdom, has this, uh, not just a new kingdom, but such a pastoral and sort of... Uh, I don't know what the like non-insane way of saying this is, but like uh, unrefined uh, kingdom. Uh, it doesn't have a huge amount of like its own monumental architecture. So a lot of the major stone structures that um, are a part of sort of Rohan's uh, urban or rural uh, landscape geography architecture um, are things that are left over from the the, the Gondorim who uh, <laughs> basically escaped, fled uh, during uh, various pillaging runs by the Dunlendings and a plague that uh, ravaged the 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 kingdom of of Gondor in the middle of the Third Age. Um, so like Helm's Deep, for example, uh, which is kind of the most famous uh, bit of monumental architecture, I would say, in Middle Earth, certainly in the the Lord of the Rings uh, story, is actually a former uh, Gondorian stronghold. Um, 
Um, and that is just sort of part of this, like, um, the Rohirrim kind of not latching on, but but like gluing themselves on to, to older things uh, as a way of kind of building their myth. I was just thinking that kind of reminds me now of Orthanc and Saruman, especially since his story also ties deeply into uh, the Rohan story, as we're going to discuss in upcoming episodes, um, because Orthanc was also not built by him. It was built by the Numenorians, correct? Yeah, yeah. So it's also a Gondor stronghold. So I kind of like that connection. Maybe in a way it kind of shows kind of a shared history that kind of predates both Saruman and the kingdom of Rohan um, and as it flows out from Gondor and Numenor. So I kind of like that connection. Yeah, well, I, I think it's always kind of interesting given the context of like the, the Rohirrim being um, the Anglo-Saxons because the Anglo-Saxons obviously have their their sort of own uh, torrid history with the, the Romans. And if you take this analog of the reunite, well, not the reunited, the United Kingdom of, oh, fuck, uh, I hate that. Uh, we're not going to say United Kingdom of Gondor and Arnor ever again. It's the reunited <laughs> kingdom. Um, the previously united kingdom of Gondor and Arnor before uh, Isildur and Anarion had their little shit fit. Um, uh, if you take them as the Romans, as the ancient Romans, then the uh, Anglo-Saxons uh, or the Rohirrim kind of coming into that and building that up and using the kind of edifices of that to build their own civilization is literally just the the recent history of England. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does kind of give it that nice, nice like depth of history depth of feeling um yeah but like but like the english actually this man uh this is this tolkien guy he really he really knew what he was doing um <laughs> <laughs> like the english um the rohirrim are also kind of like a like a pastoral kind of nation this sort of very like pastoral elegiac oh we have nothing here but farmlands and fields and uh wooden houses instead of stone houses um and and so like the rohirrim sort of as they encompass this massive bit of territory like it is a really kind of sparsely populated bit of territory um and the few urban centers that it does have like are themselves not necessarily major cities in the way that we think so like you've got like Adaris, uh which is the capital of of uh rohan the seat of power in rohan um and it is not <laughs> it's not a metropolis by any means it's certainly many orders of magnitude smaller than Minas Tirith. um i know it's meant to be a uh, kind of old world london um but just based on like how it's described, I've always thought of it more as uh, as Edinburgh and, and Edinburgh for mm-hmm. uh, anyone who quite reasonably doesn't know is like a really fucking small city and, and always has been. Um, and, um, you know, even now it's only got like 600,000 people in it. And um, that's that's a very like recent thing. But it's, you know, the city on the hill with the castle in the center um, and uh, all of the people, uh, the population of Edinburgh or at least the, the former city of Edinburgh before it kind of devoured all of the village, the outlying villages used to live inside this tiny city wall. Now that I've said that, however, Edoras is not a walled city, and this is a thing that Tolkien goes into in like great detail in in the the books, um, where he's like, it is significant that Edoras isn't a walled city because it obviously puts them at higher risk. Isn't it kind of dumb that they haven't done that? And then in the films, they're like, yeah, give it a wall. <laughs> um, they use it to good dramatic effect, but yeah, but that's just like one of these things. Um, anyways, so Edoras, uh, and then Aldberg is the other kind of major uh, urban center in Rahan, um, and Aldberg is important because it's where where Aerol the Young, who's the guy who like sign the treaty with Carrion, the steward of Gondor, uh, to establish Rohan, uh, where he was originally based before he came to took his long trek to to Adaris. and that's also where Aomer and Eowyn were born, and where you know from whence their father hailed. Um, 
so yeah, but like, and this massive, massive amount of territory, they, they've really only got those two urban centers, um, which I think speaks to kind of how, well, the kind of country we're dealing with really right here. Uh, it's like the Bolivia of Middle Earth in a lot of ways. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> farmland mostly. Now, is that that cultural part, like that they're farmlands and horsemen, is that part of the reason why they didn't have walls around Edoras? And even the ones as depicted in uh, the films, it's more of like wooden stakes, yeah. which doesn't feel like it would withhold a siege the same way the walls of Minas Tirith or Helm's Deep would. Yeah, uh, it's I, it's a couple of things, really. I think like the, the sort of pastoral element, like giving easy access to uh, the farmlands is definitely uh, like an important part of that. Um, to go back to the sort of Edinburgh example, um, you've got the city walls, uh, the ancient city walls around the city of Edinburgh that, you know, stood as kind of the, the actual demarcation line until kind of the start of the 18th century. But even when those walls were in place... And you still had um, immediate farmland just outside of those walls and the, the walls were kind of porous and to, to allow that kind of farmland in and out. And so you've got like the Cowgate and Edinburgh now, which, believe it or not, uh, relates to cows and, and uh, letting cows uh, graze. Um, and then you've got this sort of uh, like moral political thing that Tolkien's trying to impart uh, through his brief chat about like the, <laughs> the urban <laughs> architecture of uh, the Rohirrim, which is that they are a bit... Un, like a bit NQR, they're kind of like not thinking, at, you know, despite being a, a nation that is pretty constantly under in a state of siege or war or conflict for the, the, the duration of its history, they're not thinking strategically or like sustainably. So at no point does it really occur to them to build a stone wall because they might get attacked and they're massive uh, fortress that they use to 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 sort of hold out against their oldest enemy um, wasn't built by them and wasn't really improved in any way by them. They just kind of squat in it and use what they 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 sort of had before. And um, so there's that kind of element of like they don't have a a, a massive wall around the city in a time of uh, need for a massive wall. Like aren't these guys kind of kind of dipshits? Um, and then it's also just that like Tolkien's lifting pretty. Pretty clearly from the Anglo Anglo Saxons and and the sort of um, English um, mythology, I guess, and the English towns, um, sort of in the pre-Roman and then during the Roman years when you weren't a Roman, uh, also didn't really tend to have uh, stone walls around the city. Okay, that makes sense. I, I'm going to do a little bit of headcanon here um, and say if your uh, military strength is in cavalry it probably makes sense to not encumber them. I don't know if the Aored are stored or like are housed or stabled within the walls of Edoras or mm -hmm. not, um, or if that's ever explained, but let's say they were, you would probably not want like a small gate that all 10,000 of your horses <laughs> have to go through. That seems like a very big military disadvantage. So it, yeah, that's kind of how I'm rationalizing it. <laughs> Which I think raises a point, and this is me being like prematurely bitter about something that's going to happen in Return of the King, but it would be reasonable to not, set up, say, an entire line of horses to do a cavalry charge at a city, wouldn't it? Um, funny that that happens as a big heroic thing in the Return of the King films. Uh, anyways, um, it's fine. Um, I'll be I'll be grumpy in however many weeks it takes for us to get to the last battle at Osgiliath. Um, yeah, but so, okay, so so that's really interesting, though, the, the question about, like, uh, the Aereds and, and where they're, like, barracked or housed or whatever, um, because that's actually kind of an important governing structure for, uh, like, the actual kingdom of the Mark, uh, not the territory, but but it's sort of, like, polity. Um, 
Uh, like I mentioned that it's split in half, East Mnet, West Mnet, and then within the West Mnet, you've got the split between East Fold, West Fold. Previously, there was just the fold, uh, which which was sort of the areas, the, the lands around Adaris. Um, but each of the primary divisions, um, and so this is East Fold, West Fold, and then East Mnet, had um, an so, okay, sorry, backing myself up here. So the ARED just refers to like, a, a, I don't know what the actual uh, military equivalent is. I would say like a battalion. Um, there are three ARREDs in the AOHAIR. Um, the AOHAIR refers to the actual military, cavalry military of Rohan. And each of those three divisions that I mentioned there, the East Mnet, the East Fold, and then the West Fold, have their own AORED. Um, and each AORED is led by a marshal. Um, so AOMR, for example, is the third marshal of the Rittermark. He's also the the head of the uh, Eastmark, uh, which is the, the Eastfold. Um, and his father, uh, Aomond, was the lord of the city of Aldberg, and Aldberg is the capital of the Eastfold. So there's that like really close relationship between military stratifications and actual governance of the lands, the realms, the fiefs of, of Rohan. Um, and that that is like crucial for a lot of reasons. Um, one is that, um, and this isn't like necessarily enumerated in canon, but it's sort of the like accidental implication of this is that like Rohan is one of the most centralized states that we actually see in Middle Earth um, because uh, the the marshals of uh, the Aorids all uh, report directly to and are accountable directly to the King of the Mark. Uh, the King of the Mark has um, a pretty insane amount of power. Um, he controls literally everybody that that holds that carries arms within the mark, um, and because those are connected so intimately to regions, um, it means that if you are the marshal of the third mark, for example, if you're Aomer and you um, are also the lord of the city of Aldberg and you control vast swathes of uh, the East Mark or or the Eastfold. Um, you have to be real fucking careful. Um, you have to be real, real fucking careful because the only guy you answer to is literally the king and he can turn the entire kingdom against you. There's not much room for sort of um, establishing your own kind of um, internal sphere of influence. But the king also has to be careful because his three sort of most important military commanders also have a disproportionate amount of power. Um, I don't want to get, I'm going to get back into this later when we talk about like Theoden and why he ends up like what he is and what his relationship is to Aomer. Um, but it is kind of significant to, to mention that the, the king of the Rohirrim, here and the king of the Rittermark has, has this weird position where he simultaneously has a shit ton of power and then no power at all. Um, so there's that. Um, so the Kings of the Rittermark then, uh, Weird bunch of guys. Uh, started by Aeril. Uh, Aeril is the one who answers the call of the Gondorim, goes down the crossings of Poros, fights and wins the battle, gets Rohan, yada, yada, yada. Um, for 250 years, um, Aeril's sons and grandsons rule as kings of the Mark. Uh, and then there's a guy named Helm Hammerhand. Um, and you may know his name right now because they're making an anime about him. Um, and this is the most like kind of scared and excited I've ever been for anything because like I think uh, using anime to do Middle Earth is uh, a galaxy brain genius idea. It's perfect. Um, but then I'm also like, oh, but it's uh, some of the, the writers I don't like uh, are involved. Uh, so yeah, Helm Hammerhand anime coming soon. 
Yeah, that's not the first time that something's been happening with Helm Hammerhand in the last decade. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings Shadows of War game, which is the sequel to Shadows of Mordor, uh, Helm Hammerhand is actually one of the nine Nazgul. Um, they basically, <laughs> I, I think we've talked about this before, but they basically, and they admitted that they are bending canon. They are not saying that Helm Hammerhand was one of the Nazgul, but they wanted to pull him in for the story they were telling. I don't remember too much else about him from the game, but I do plan to replay them this summer and hopefully come back to the podcast with a little more in depth on it, but um, I have seen him repurposed before. So I'm interested to see how the anime uh, treats him uh, coming up. Okay. So that's really interesting. Um, I, so, okay, fine. Maybe they are bending canon, but that that's cool because the, the in-universe lore. So Helm Hammerhand is the last of the first line of the house of Errol. Um, he's the last because he disappears, um, you know, probably died of exposure somewhere. Um, but the the sort of myth surrounding his death in Rohan and Universe is that he became a wraith. That's a lowercase w wraith as in uh, a spirit, a banshee lake spirit. Um, and uh, it's said that sometimes you can hear his horn blowing still in Helm's Night, Helm's Deep. Um, that's really cool to make him become a Nazgul um, because it fits perfectly in that whole he becomes a wraith um, uh, bit of fact, a uh, bit of errata, I guess, from uh, canon. Uh, that, that's nice. I quite like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> man, and also what a fucking... Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, you'd be mad if you were Helm Hammerhand, comma, Nazgul TM, uh, and the Rohirrim that killed uh, a Nazgul killed the witch king and not you <laughs> like <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> um <laughs> nice um so yeah so helm helm disappears uh maybe becomes an asgul um i quite like that now uh and his nephew freya leaf uh takes over and begins the second line of the house of Aeorl. um during the reign of the second line uh saruman arrives um as you mentioned he takes over or think uh, and makes nice with the rohirrim um and becomes a really important and sort of steadfast ally for the rohirrim um, it's also really important to note that um, the Rohirrim are a fairly cloistered people as these things go, not just geographically, because they're kind of in this weird caldera where on like two, yeah, they've kind of got impassable borders on like three of the four sides of Rohan and then the other borders with Gondor and the Gondor a lot are a bit douchey at times. Um, so they've got like mountains on two sides and then a big impassable river on the other. Um Saruman's really their only kind of interaction with the the sort of supernatural contingent of Middle Earth. Um, he is like a wizard, but lots of folk uh, folk tales kind of encompass wizards very comfortably without having to also reckon with the existence of like immortality through the elves or the Ents. Um, so yeah, uh, Saruman shows up, uh, becomes a really important ally for uh, the Rohirrim. Um, and he's kind of their only connection to the supernatural, which is why when they like hear about Galadriel, they're like, isn't she a witch and isn't she probably dead? And they have to reckon with the, the <laughs> earth shattering reality of God, these things are real. Um, Saruman's also impor important because he guards the, the Aizen, which is a river. Uh, the Fords of Aizen is the border between Rohan and the sort of territory of the Dunlandings, which is obviously Dunland, but also the Enid Waith. Uh, and that's to the... I have to do the never eat shredded wheat 
uh, thing to remember, initialism to remember Compass Roses. Uh, never, south and west of Rohan is where Dunland and the north of west and west of Rohan is where Enid Waith is. Um, so he becomes this kind of important border marshal in a lot of ways for them, which is why it's so tragic that Theodred dies at the Battle of the Fords of Eisen and why that's where a lot of the, the sort of shit for Rohan in the Ring War kicks off. Um, the Dunlandings are this sort of constant thorn in the side of the Rohirrim. Uh, as I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, the Rohirrim uh, took over this land with the sort of consent of Gondor, but nobody bothered to think about the fact that tribes had moved into uh, the land when Gondor had fucked off out of it. Um, and the Dunlandings are obviously very, very mad about having been kicked out of their land again. Um, in the films, uh, Saruman talks about that quite a bit. He's like, we'll take your land back from the horse lords uh, which is a bit of a fair enough, um, but you know this is meant to mirror the the very real uh, example of the Anglo-Saxon, the Celts, who famously spent hundreds of years in pissing contests, uh, and all it has done is uh, make these islands, uh, these islands being uh, the islands of Great Britain and Ireland, uh, a far more interesting place to be in politically, I guess. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it, it, in sort of inherent to all of the, these questions about like the organization of the military and, uh, Rohan's weird sort of centralized monarchy and its constant fights with the, um, Dunlandings and pretty much anyone who gets too close. Um, there's a lot that we can't know about Rohan. In fact, like we we don't really have anything from Tolkien being like, and the Rohirrim had X number of precincts uh, with you know thirty councillors elected at each one, and they were elected on a four year cycle. But we can kind of piece together some really interesting stuff from the sort of marginalia of Tolkien's writing. And one of the things things that's particularly interesting is a couple sort of errant mentions of the king of the Rittermark needing to hold together the East and West fold, implying that as I kind of put together um, there, that that the the sort of marshal of uh, the East Mark or, or the East fold and the marshal or lord of the West fold um, may have at various points either feuded with one another or tried to pull away from the crown. Um, and the king's sort of job is to hold these motherfuckers together. Um, and that is an important point for when we chat about Aramer um, in a couple minutes, um, because, uh, yeah, this whole idea of strategic marriages uh, might become a sort of central element to the the outlying chat about, about Rohan. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're a weird fucking bunch. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then we get into... Something that I am going to quite say cynically say doesn't exist, but uh, unfortunately does exist, which is the culture of Rohan. Um, oh, these th their culture is, I, I like I, I don't even know what the like right and good way to like thing to no you know what? I do know what it is. Uh, if you've seen the movie The Northman, <laughs> um, <laughs> you will know what Rohan should look like on film uh, and and the the sort of Viking berserker berserker culture that that you see. Um, portrayed in the Northman is pretty much bang on what the Rohirrim are meant to be, um, which is to say they are like a warrior culture. Um, so as I've mentioned a million and one times before, like the Rohirrim are uh, inspired by Beowulf um, and the Anglo-Saxons, of course, um, and war and fighting and, and making your whole personality being the biggest, baddest, best warrior of all time is a really crucial element to, to life and in, in Rohan and of course is crucial to the, the Rohan plot. 
Yeah, and I'm just going to take this opportunity to say that me and Emily are going to do a special little episode on The Northman. I don't know why I called it special little episode, (laughs) but uh, we are going to dive into that movie um, because the way we talk about films and the way we talk about the Norse and other kind of influences on Tolkien's work, um, I think it's a good film that allows us to kind of square up that lens with something else um, and hopefully glean some more stuff out of that. That should be coming out sometime after you hear this episode, but I just wanted to prep you for it. So if you've been on the fence about going to see it in theaters or streaming it whenever it's available, um, go ahead and do it because we will be diving into it ourselves. Oh my God. Yeah, you absolutely must. I sat, I sat down for that thing and got about 15 minutes in and was like, this is, this is Tolkien. Um, anyways, I'll save it for, I'll save it for when we chat about it, but yeah, holy shit, that movie. Um, But it's brilliant because um, it gets at a whole bunch of the sort of important thematic elements of Rohan, which is like one is this emphasis on war, war as the only way to live your life. The only way to distinguish yourself in Rohan is by being an important warrior. The only way to sort of exert political power in Rohan is by being the most successful in war is by conquering and and ruling your lands with an iron fist. Um, And the only sort of uh, way crucially to be remembered after you die is by being a warrior of great renown. And this is something we're going to get into a lot with Eowyn uh, when she comes on the scene. Um, But the reason why um, the only way to sort of be remembered, well, one of the reasons why the only way to be remembered um, after you die is is through being a warrior is because the Rohirrim have a primarily oral culture. Um, Tolkien says that they don't write much, um, which isn't to say that they don't have a written language. They absolutely do have a written language. Um, but the the sort of popular use of language is through an oral culture. They sing songs, they tell stories, um, they uh, don't fill up their uh, houses or their cities with libraries and, you know, shelves and shelves and shelves of books. Um, it is first and foremost uh, the sort of culture that Tolkien himself liked studying, which is one where stories are king. Now I'm just thinking that all the uh, Rohirrim are illiterate. Uh, so in the movie, when Grima holds up the letter that says you're exiled, Eomer is like, well, that can't stop me because I can't read. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> that's awesome. And yes, brilliant. I'm, I'm like, I accept that. <laughs> but it's also like I've been um, one of my friends and I have been chatting about how much we hate the Rohan is illiterate. Well, not the Rohan is illiterate. Eowyn is illiterate. People, fans, maybe well-meaningfully, well, well, it, well-meaningfully, that's my word, <laughs> maybe in a well-meaning way, um, with the best of intentions, try to like have certain characterizations of Eowyn. One of them is like this really nauseating dumb jock um approach to Eowyn and it's become quite trendy in like a lot of fandom circles to be like she can't read (laughs) which is like for a variety of reasons I'm like I feel like I don't need to go into why being like the one woman character we actually hear from in these books is illiterate um like I I don't I feel like I don't need to explain why that's fucking crazy um but Mm -hmm. I like the idea of all of the Rohirrim not being able to fucking read and nobody really like cottoning on to that and just being like here dude look at this or like Aragorn sending when he's king sending loads of letters and being like I guess Amor is just ghosting me (laughs) that's why they use the beacons with fire because there's no written word involved it's like oh they need us (laughs) uh if uh Denethor sent a raven, Theoden would just like turn it upside down. Like, what? <laughs> what is this devilry? I don't understand. <laughs> That's actually why the relationship between Gondor and Rohan got so frosty in the previous 80 years. <laughs> the Stuarts just didn't realize they couldn't fucking read. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we've we've developed a great new canon. I love this. Yeah, um, I'm down for it. It's also, I think, um, a much more cheerful alternate, not alternative. Well, yeah, a much more cheerful take on why the Rohirrim are like that because it's just that they're not reading stuff and and instead of the rather more grim reality, which is like they choose to be like this, um, and that it very clumsily <laughs> brings me to this issue of. Why? Why Rohan? Why the Rohirrim? Why do they show up here? And why are they important? And why do we care? Um, besides having uh, bang in aesthetics uh, and a great uh, leitmotif, um, which they don't have in, <laughs> in the book, so <laughs> don't know why <laughs> why that's there. But yeah. Um, so the Rohan plotline, among many things, um, is about Tolkien leveraging a very specific political critique of England. Um, he um, is was sort of perhaps naively attempting to sort of uncover uh, an English na- national mythos, an English national identity. And you see that sort of in, in, in most clearly in two places. One is the Shire, um, which is very much England. Um, and then the other is, is sort of Rohan uh, and uh, the England that was. Um, one of his sort of more crucial elements um, or more crucial sort of points uh when he's talking about the Rohirrim and, and through all the Rohirrim plot lines, is questioning the valorization of war. And when I was thinking about this episode, I was like, I don't know how to like explain that in a way that makes it feel relevant. You know, Tolkien wrote all of this in World War Two. He served in World War One. World War One was sort of immediately revised as this, like, you know, rather than being a meat grinder into which the the sort of aristocracies of uh, Europe, um, post-1848 Europe, sent all of their working class men to, to die, you know, basically obliterating multiple generations of their country for the sake of a dick measuring contest on an international scale, um, and then sort of revising that legacy of that war into, oh, but, you know, it was all for the sake of the nations and we were fighting the evil Huns um, and we were doing, you know, fighting the good fight. Um, and weren't all those boys who went off to die so brave. Um, and Tolkien, of course, who sat in the trenches was like, no, like we weren't having a good time. This isn't why we went to war. We didn't feel brave. We felt like shit and that we wanted to go home and be like with the people that we love, not getting our legs blown to fuck in the Ardennes. Um, so Tolkien had that. And, you know, I was sitting here being like, how do I explain that? Um, and the way I explain it is by pointing out, and I'm so sorry to do this, um, the existence of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and mm-hmm. so much of the the sort of cultural and storytelling critiques that Tolkien lodges through the Rohir plot lines um, exist now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is in part uh, the valorization of war, this idea that like the only way to sort of solve your problems or to prove yourself is through the the sort of crucible of war. Um, but then there's also this way that like one of the only ways to distinguish yourself, to make yourself the main character of your life, um, particularly if you are a woman or if you are someone who is not white, is through, you know, donning the super suit and becoming a legendary warrior. Um, and this is not to like shit on, you know, the the, the comic books um, or potentially, you know, maybe some of the more interesting plots that are in the, the MCU itself. Um, but th- this sort of whole idea of like violence and warfare as a central organizing structure in, in uh, the world that we live in is absolutely what Tolkien is using the Rohirrim 
uh, as a as a thing to critique. And so he's got, um, you know, on one hand, he's got Theoden, who um, who is so sort of has his mind and his pride and ego turned so badly by the, this central organizing concept of violence and war that he's essentially paralyzed by his own uh, by his own pride. Um, and then you've got Eowyn, who um, is told that the only way to be a person, the only way to be self, or to be fully realized as a person, and to have a life worth living, is to you know pick up a sword and go fight and go be a girl boss. Um, but is also systemically and systematically denied the ability to pick up a sword and go to war. And the only way out between that, uh, you know, between that rock and a hard place for her is death. Um, and, and this is just a theme that, that that's pretty constant throughout. Um, so you've got for why Rohan, you've got one, which is, you know, making Beowulf a sort of more explicitly English thing and, and helping to, to sort of shape this, this English mythology. And then you've also got Tolkien, trying to write through and struggle through his sort of complex feelings about the war and uh, nationhood and the war. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And even as an MCU fan, ostensibly, <laughs> like, I think that's a totally legitimate critique, uh, not to get too far off topic, but I actually rewatched the first Doctor Strange yesterday in anticipation of the new Raimi film. And it actually stood out to me that there is one point where Doctor Strange kills a dude and then he has like a whole mental breakdown about how he was a doctor and like he's supposed to help people and not do harm and he doesn't want any part of this. And then the actual resolution of that film not being um, him killing a bunch of people, but actually him sacrificing himself or dying over and over again. Um, for those who've seen the movie, no, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. Um, it's a nice little twist. I don't think the movie itself is one of the best MCU films, but it is one of the only ones that actually addresses the violence that basically every other film wallows in um, and actually valorizes, as you say. Um, so I, I just think that stood out. But I think that's absolutely, there is an ubermensch quality to the MCU where great men do violence and save the world. Um, you know, sometimes they let women do it too, but um, it's, a very, it's a very narrow portrait of violence and its usefulness. And that it is useful is its thesis uh, in yeah. those, so... I think it's very valuable. And uh, okay, I'm going to do one more tangent. But uh, one of the reasons I love fucking Metal Gear Solid is that it wraps mm -hmm. its story in all those hyper violent uh, The Rock and Escape from New York and James Bond and all those action movies is what it wraps itself in as an aesthetic. But then when you actually get down to the themes of it, it's all about confronting you with your violence. Why do you want these movies mm. or games where you kill a million people? It's actually bad if you do that. It's the preferred way to play that is going through these games and not killing people. Um, and that has rewards and leads you to better storylines. So um, part of the reason I vibe with that series so much is because it takes the wrappings of military and violence and then completely turns it on its head in its thematic and character studies. So um, I can see why Rohan itself would absolutely fit in with that and why you would vibe with that specifically as well. Yeah, this is where I'm going to like tap on the glass and be like, this this is the moment to plug uh, the Northman uh, episode again because yes, like yes, this is this is all of all of everything that the the Northman is doing. Um, and I also now like um, I'm I'm not walking this back, but I also do want to sort of say that like there is a tendency to view like the MCU as the heart of darkness and like the so sort of sole progenitor of evil in our culture right now. I mean, I don't actually think that's accurate. Um, uh, one of the things I was literally just thinking about there, uh, the words uh, Rohan Top Gun were just like flashing in my brain, like a, the welcome. Vegas sign, um, which has now got me onto this idea of Top Gun, 
um, and uh, military style movies, which are were not started with the Marvel films um, and have been around basically as long as cinema has been around. Um, and it, it, it is interesting to me and sort of makes me laugh that like, um, you know, even as Tolkien is writing in uh, 1944, 1945, you know, these war movies that he so abhors uh, are, are, are being made. Um, and rather than seeing a sort of downtick in them once World War II and the sort of true horrors of, of World War II and the Holocaust are, are revealed, um, we actually have a spike in them. And every other fucking movie is a war movie now. We've actually been sort of blissfully free of war movies lately. I feel like I haven't had to see or hear about many of them, but I know they're going to come back. Um, but yeah, but it is a kind of fun and slightly depressing thought exercise to be like, what would Tolkien have thought about this? And how how grim is it that the dude with probably the world's worst politics was absolutely right on this one issue? <laughs> right. And I'm sure you could speak more to Britain than I can, but um, viewing it from an American lens, the uptick in war movies and kind of um, the John Wayne movies outside of his couple John Ford collaborations are all pretty much military valorization. And that pretty much goes part and parcel with the American project after World War II. Yeah. And it technically began a little bit, but kind of like bringing the globe under the American hegemon and the war movies are part of the same purpose or thesis that America has been forwarding ever since. So can't separate the two. Yep. Spot on. Before we get into Theoden and his nephew Aomer, which for some reason <laughs> scans to me as like Socrates and his Socrates friend, uh, but <laughs> but there we go. Daryl. <laughs> Daryl, that's what it was. I was like, it's not Sam, it's not Sam, it's Socrates' friend Daryl. Thank you. Oh God. Um, they've even got that same mouthfeel. Um, anyways. <laughs> So before we get into that, we have to go back uh, a couple of generations, um, as we are wont to do in a lot of these uh, sort of, well, yeah, just these freak characters. I don't know. I can't help myself. Is basically basically the reason why there. I can't give a good intellectual rationalization there. Um, so we have to go back three kings to a lad named Fengel, um, and that's F-E-N-G-E-L. Um, and Fengel is, uh, I would say nicely uh the bag of dicks king um he sucks uh and is um this sort of fount of all of the things that go wrong in rohan and the reason why uh, everything sucks um and so he's theoden's grandfather um fengal is also interesting because his name is literally a name derived from beowulf uh fengal means prince um, beyond that, there's not really a huge amount worth saying about him. Uh, he is immensely corrupt. He's mercurial. He doesn't have the sort of, um, temperament to handle other people in leadership. He pisses off everybody around him. Um, and more than that, he's not even that good at putting down the Dunlending. So it's like, okay, we've got a king with this awful personality and for what? Um, and that's a question that his son Thengel, which is T-H-E-N-G-E-L, asks and comes to the conclusion, fuck knows for what, I'm going over to Gondor. So Thengel uh, goes goes to Gondor. Um, he goes to first to Minas Tirith um, and becomes this sort of revered warrior working for uh, the steward Turgon, who is 
Denethor's great-grandfather and Boromir and Faramir's great-great-grandfather. Um, and sort of has this kind of mini Aragorn in Gondor as Throngil arc where where he really builds up a name for himself, builds up a lot of renown, uh, basically just being a, a, a glorified cell sword. Um, while he's kicking about in Gondor, uh, avoiding his parents, uh, who, who of us have not also done that. Um, just kidding. If any of my parents ever listen to this, uh, that's not why I live here. Um, uh, Thangol goes to a realm of Gondor called Lossernak. Um, and Lossernak is the, uh, little strip of land, uh, due South of, of Minas Tirith. It's the Vale of Flowers. And um, while he's in Lossernak, he meets a woman named Morwen. Um, and marries her. Mormon is um, very cryptically, I think Tolkien says this, I think because he's trying to avoid the like potential incest questions, uh, kin to the Prince of Dol Amroth. Um, I say potential incest questions because uh, Eomer marries Lothiriel, who's the daughter of the Prince of Dol Amroth, Imrahel, and then Eowyn marries Faramir, who is the nephew of the Prince of Dol Amroth and Tolkien had some weird back and forth with some himself about sort of uh, aristocratic incest. Um, so she's only the king, uh, kin to the the Prince of Dol Amroth. We don't get anything more concrete than that. Um, for a time, um, Thangol and Morwen live in Lossernak. They have five kids, um, of which one is Theoden um, and Theoduin, his sister, who is the mother of Eomer and Eomund. Um, after Fengal dies, um, Thangal is called back to the Mark to take up his position as King of the Mark, King of the Ritter Mark. Um, and he goes, um, but his kids have spent five or so years living, Theoden in particular, spent five years living in Gondor, and so have this sort of nascent Gondor identity and culture about them. Um, importantly, Morwen, who's an aristocrat of, of Gondor and um, from a, a sort of very... Uh, like proudly uh, Numenorean, uh, Numenorean inclined culture, which is the culture of Lassernak, um, speaks Sindarin and the common tongue, um, but Sindarin as her sort of birth tongue and raises the kids speaking Sindarin. So Theoden and Theodwin, Amor and Eowyn's mom, uh, both natively speak Sindarin, which is the language of the elves um, and is also the language of the aristocracy in uh, Gondor. They also, of course, speak the common tongue, uh, which is related in the books and in the movies as English. Um, they do not <laughs> learn the Rohir language, at least for a time. Uh, Morwen never learns it. Um, Theoden obviously does learn it because he becomes the king of, of the Rittermark, and Theoden does also learn it. Um, but the kids, when they are kids and when they are sort of still um, immediately the, the the like direct words of their parents, speak Sindarin and the common tongue at home. And uh, Morwen brings in a lot of the sort of Gondor cultural uh, exploits, I guess, uh, from, from Lassernak with her. She earns herself the epithet Steel Sheen. So she's known as Morwen Steel Sheen. Uh, this is apparently just because, like, literally the, the justification in slightly flowery words in the appendices is she's a stone cold bitch. Uh, so fair enough. Um, she's so sharp she could uh, make a short shiny, uh, which is like a nice compliment. Um, anyways, while Thangol is a king, uh, a lad named Throngil 
comes by. Uh, that is Aragorn, um, and he uh, sells his services as a as a warrior, I guess, to Thangol. So, sort of returning the favor that Thangol did to uh, did for Gondor, uh, and then uh, Thrawn kill immediately fucks off to go make his glory at Plargir. Um, Thangol rules until oh my god, I'm gonna get the year wrong on this. Uh, he's like 78. Yeah, so like 20. Yeah. 2980. Oh, I've even got it right on. 2980. Uh, so he rules until the 2980, which is when uh, Theoden is 31 uh, and then drops dead and passes the crown to Theoden. Uh, Theoden, uh, who's not young, not old, but not young, uh, 31 when he takes the crown, uh, then rules for, well, we, we see the end of his rule. Uh, mm -hmm. So I feel like I don't need to explain that one too much. Um, Theoden as a name is something um, I find kind of funny, some nice little nominative determinism or maybe some hubris from his parents. Um, Theod means people um, in Anglo-Saxon or Old English. Um, and then the name Theoden in Anglo-Saxon literally just means king. Uh, so named named their son king. Uh, you know, fair enough. Do what you will. Um, Tolkien does have a note that says that uh, his proper Rohir name uh, would have been Turak. Uh, which which is fun, I think. Um, so he's born in 2948, as I said, in Gondor. So he's 71 years old when we meet him in the books. So he's an old guy who probably just really wants to retire. Uh, although I guess he hasn't really been doing any work, so maybe he doesn't <laughs> need a retirement. Um, nevertheless, he marries a gal named Elfhild, uh, another one of Tolkien's menacing women, because she dies giving birth to Theodred. How convenient. Um, and Theoden never remarries. So either he really loved her, which is sweet and nice, or he chose not to, or uh, as Tolkien, I suspect, was probably hinting at, was not doing his duty as a king. And that's obviously a highly politicized thing. <laughs> so I maybe won't go go more into that because there's some <laughs> batshit politics behind that. Um, Theoden, Theoden's reign. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so Theoden has quite the personality on him. Uh, he is not like Thengel, his grandfather, uh, perhaps slightly more like Thengel, um, not a huge amount like his mother, Morwen. Uh, he is this sort of decidedly Rohir, uh, character. Um, he has a hell of a sense of pride about him. He is, um, well, actually, you know what? Pride is the like nice way they explain it in the books. Um, he's a fucking egotist is what he is. Uh, he really has some problems with like setting aside uh, his personality and what feels like good for him uh, to do things in the name of, I don't know, taking care of the fucking people he rolls over. Um, in case it's not obvious, I hate Theoden in the books. Um, so, you know, Theoden eventually redeems himself, I guess. Maybe. I would say probably not, but but Tolkien wants us to think that Theoden redeems himself. Um, and beyond that, it serves this really uh, important narrative purpose that I'm not allowed to get mad about because it is actually like very narratively important, which is acting as the sort of uh, worst case scenario for Aragorn. So when Aragorn goes through Rohan, he has to see a king that is a shitty king to remind himself that being a king did not, does not necessarily mean that you're going to be a good king and you do actually have to work at being a good king and not just like cub out in your silks and your velvets sitting on a throne and things will be all well and good. Um, and that, that sort of cutting about in your silks and your velvets and not really doing el anything else besides admiring your fancy trinkets and your throne is exactly the sort of behavior that gets, uh, Theoden ensnared by Grima Wormtongue. Um, and I am remarkably unsympathetic to him on, on this 
case. Uh, I got accused of victim blaming on Tumblr once over this. It's like being a dumbass isn't like a fucking victim. Like it's not a crime. Like you're just dumb. Anyways, uh, whatever. Uh, apologies for victim blaming, but Theoden did dumb shit and Grima took advantage of Theoden doing dumb shit to enrich himself. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll compare that to assault, but there it is. Um, Theoden and Grima as their sort of counterparts, their weird uh, parasitic symbiotic whatever relationship uh stand in there for like uh all of the questions that tolkien wants to raise about like the culpability of kings and and ruining or raising up their kingdoms the necessity necessity of sort of accountability and um like restorative or reparative uh acts uh not not justice i should note but acts uh once you've done fucked up uh, and then questions about like the nature of rulership and good rulership Theoden was the last of the second line of Eorl, which is the line that started with Freyleif, the nephew of Helm. And Eomer, although he doesn't know it at this point in the story, is going to become the first of the third line of the House of Eorl. You're going to need a map to keep track of that, so just start copying your notes down now. Eomer, which is a name that means famous warhorse, and is also, importantly, a name that appears in Beowulf, was born in the year 2990, which makes him... 29 when the books and movies are happening so fairly young as these things go he is the only and the eldest son of theoduin and aomend aomend was a uh, kind of an interesting guy he was the lord of aldberg um which is information we get both in the appendices of the lord of the rings and the unfinished tales uh so he was a, a sort of significant aristocrat when theoduin uh married him um but he was also <laughs> To put it nicely, uh, not the greatest military mind alive. Um, as I mentioned in, I think, the Gollum episode, uh, he led a scouting mission on horses through the Emin Wheel, which is dumb as hell. Like, I wouldn't take horses up a mountain like that. Um, and died, obviously. <laughs> um, so he he died. Uh, and then within a couple months, again, Tolkien doing this great thing by treating women as whole human beings. Theodwin just dies of sadness a couple months later. Uh, so you don't have to... So Tolkien, I guess, doesn't have to write a woman <laughs> into that narrative. Um, Aomer then, at quite a young age, sort of has to take on quite a bit of this power. He and his sister. So Aomer is like 11 or 12 when Theoduin and Eomen die. Uh, Eowyn's like seven. Uh, they're ferried from Aldberg to Edoras, which is where Metiseld, the Golden Hall of Metiseld is. Um, and Eomer then becomes the Lord of Aldberg um, and you know starts his sort of training to be a warrior. This, to be honest, is basically all of the information we have about Aomer's young life. Um, to be fair, like, I don't, well, you know, maybe because I'm an asshole, I don't really need more information about him than that. Like, he exists to fulfill this very specific trope, which is the berserker trope. Um, and for folks who are not aware, although I feel like this this is like the trope that gets brought up quite a bit, um, berserkers were a sort of mythological Viking warrior that were said to uh, kind of embody the spirit of a of an animal um as they begin to fight um and become sort of so um enamored by and and sort of wedded to this idea of of war and being the most the strongest most impressive war warrior on a battlefield and then of course dying in war um that all they are is this sort of ball of like frenetic war and violence um and that that's what aomer is meant to represent in in this narrative 
I hate to circle back to Marvel, but perhaps the most <laughs> popular berserker in pop culture right now is the Wolverine or Logan, um, mm. specifically talking about his comics, but also in the films, uh, the R-rated ones when he actually gets to uh, yeah. whip loose. Obviously, his codename is Wolverine, so that feral side, that animalistic side is very much on the sleeve of that character. But felt like I had to mention that because as soon as I see Berserker, the first name that pops into my mind is Wolverine. That's really funny. Um, I'm just realizing how much of a dipshit I am because I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, Thor, right? No, <laughs> guess not. I don't know. I don't know shit about Thor. Um, but yeah, no, no, that's that is a great call. And Wolverine's definitely also I think the only Wolverine movie I've actually seen is Logan. So I feel like I've seen a very specific side of Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, which is definitely a side I think more closely analogous to like Aomer the character. Um, but yeah, that is totally the vibe that they're going for with who Aomer is in in the narrative. Basically, beyond that, um, Aomer is a is a kind of interesting character. I say interesting, and for the first time, I think in this episode, not in a sarcastic way, because he is a very important sort of narrative tool. He he helps to drive forward the plot and and sort of hammer in um, a lot of Tolkien's uh, political or cultural points uh, in like a very efficient way. He like shows up to de- deliver a line. That line is like the narrative equivalent of like uh, John Krasinski in the office looking at the camera uh, and then leaves. Um, which is great efficiency. You got to support it. Um, but one of the other things that that he sort of does uh, to help drive the plot forward is he's one of the first people to recognize almost of his own accord uh, the, the sort of kingly nature, the kingship status of Aragorn. Um, and for a variety of, of reasons, this is a fun scene. Um, I love it in the books because it's when they spend like a weird 15 minutes talking about um, how Sauron only steals black horses. Um, but Eomer uh, also names Aragorn Wingfoot um, and this whole sort of process and, and mini ceremony um, of naming people um, is a really sort of crucial way that Tolkien shows uh, acknowledgement or recognition. Um, and this this idea that Aomer as sort of one of the first people to of his own volition and and not under sort of any specific dress or force recognize Aragorn as king obviously sets out the sort of significance of the Rohan Gondor alliance and this sort of renewal of the the oath of Aeril um through the sort of uh body or spirit I guess of of Aragorn um but then it's also got this like sort of secondary status as like uh medieval knights and literature and and in medieval literature and this notion of this chivalric friendship as like uh something that is uh built up through like shared shedding of blood uh and and is also something that is like deeply emotional and and has a sort of long-lasting um impact not just in the like psycho sense psychological sense but also through this like these strong male friendships, <laughs> strong male characters, strong male friendships have like the power to uh, sink or uh, raise up kingdoms. And that's exactly what Aomer and Aragorn are up to, really. Yeah, that's that's their whole shtick. <laughs> um, and then after Aomer does this really, really good thing, which is recognize the king, recognize uh, Lord of the Rings Jesus, um, he goes back to Metasalt and immediately gets thrown in the clink, <laughs> um, which is my approach to these things, and I support it, uh, but is meant to be in the narrative a bad thing and something that we should all be angry about. Um, but as I said, uh, I think in the previous episode, uh, Aomer getting thrown in prison uh, <laughs> is bad. Uh, it's a sign of how 
uh, badly managed uh, the the Rittermark is when the second most important military, well, third most important military figure, probably second most important political figure in the realm, uh, and the heir to the throne is rotting in a prison cell while the king just kind of sits around with a thumb up his asshole um, is not exactly the sign of a well-managed kingdom. Um, and is also this sort of important um, comparison point of comparison to some other significant uh, stories of knights and swords and wars. Uh, the one I think of most is Ivanhoe, but there's also a, a similar sort of trope at work in Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth, um, which is kings, rightful kings, men of um, importance, mostly kings, um, get thrown in prison, and they usually have someone who is dedicated and devoted, a dedicated and devoted follower who goes out of their way to rescue them. Um, and that's the entire plot of Ivanhoe uh, and a sort of minor subplot in Henry IV. Um, and Amor has no one. Um, Amor really has no one who comes to to find him. Uh, Aragorn kind of shows up by coincidence, um, but it's not like there's anybody advocating for Aomer. Um, Eowyn is so sort of foot bound and not pregnant, but probably will soon be pregnant in the kitchen, uh, that she can't really do any advocacy of his own. And Theoden, who is his essentially his father, uh, does fuck all to help him. Um, and it's meant to be this sort of sign of how badly things have gone for the House of Aeryl and how terrible they are at management, like people management and uh, internal politics. Yeah, I believe in prison abolition, but not for Aeromare. Is that kind of <laughs> what you were going for there? <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. So now our customary after the war section. Um, I didn't think ahead far enough to get a laugh track for uh, what Theod ends up to after the war. So uh, he's up to nothing. He dead. Sucks to suck. Uh, I just wanted to flag that in our Boromir episode, uh, when we got to after the war for Boromir, uh, Emily put in a very sad shrieking cat into the notes. <laughs> and then for Theoden, she's just like, yeah, sucks to suck. LOL. <laughs> um, I'm very objective and uh, neutral uh, when I uh, recount these characters. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Whatever. No ethics and podcasting, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Um, so the guy who survives uh, is Socrates' friend, Daryl. Um, Amor survives to the end of the story and to the end of the war um, and becomes the king of the mark, um, which is... I, like, I, it's not really played in the movies. Like he, You definitely get a shot of him on the prow at Minas Tirith during Aragorn's coronation, like, dressed up to the nines. But I feel like when I ask people what they think is going on with him in that scene, it's like a 50-50 split of people who recognize that he's the king now and people who are like, I don't know, just looked like a nice fit. Um, anyways, King of the Mark, um, and he reigns for like 70 years and is so well liked. He gets this name Eadig, which means in Anglo-Saxon, the peaceful. Yeah, I think what I presumed based on the film's ending was that Eomer was going to lead Rohan, but I had figured or the way I understood what was being presented to me was that Aragorn was king of men, um, <laughs> that he wasn't just the king of Gondor, but not that there was necessarily a reunification, but more that like they would, Rohan would owe, owe fealty to Gondor. Um, I didn't really think about it because the movies didn't really linger on it, so I didn't linger that much, but I just like, oh, he's going to be in charge. Um, Rohan and Gondor are cool now. What the exact, you know, is he a king? Is he a lord or whatnot? Um, all of that stuff kind of, like, I assume that was in play, but I just didn't think about it because I don't think about Mon 
monarchistic politics that deeply, mm. especially when the th- film is not really provoking me to think about it that deeply. <laughs> but I just kind of assumed he's in charge of the what's left of there. Um, and they were either subsumed into Gondor, but still kind of their own thing or, you know, something along those lines. That See, that's really interesting because that has kind of shades of how the Noldor elves, uh, the elves who went to Valinor and then came back and fucked everything up in Beleriand, um, kind of organized themselves because they had lots of kings and lords, but then they had specifically a high king. Uh, so the last one of them was High King Gilgalad Arrhenian, uh, who Elrond was herald to. Um, but they they sort of have this way of uh, basically accommodating all of the egos of the various like great men of their society by having like lots of lords and kings and then the high king. Um, so yeah, there's totally precedent for that. I think that's like a totally reasonable way to have looked at that. And to be honest, like Rohan's always going to be a vassal state to to uh, to Gondor anyway. So it's 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 not far off from the truth he's really uh kaino king in name only i guess um yeah um and amber in particular actually does this kind of like i I don't know if it's savvy or if it's really dumb but he he works overtime to kind of perpetuate this idea of like gondor or of rohan as like basically gondor's vassal state because as i mentioned he marries lothiriel who is the daughter of prince emrahel of dolamroth uh, emrahel is important for a whole bunch of reasons but politically he's important in gondor because he's literally the only prince uh, in the realm until faramir gets named prince of athelion so he's a guy with a lot of power um and he's also the leader of the only uh significant cavalry within gondor um, and this is now going to be me doing two minutes of taking pot shots at fans online. Um, but loads of people are like, oh, Amor and Lothiriel falling in love. How sweet, how romantic. No, it isn't, you fucking morons. It's because Emrahel has a cavalry. They're going to need loads of horses. So obviously he's shipping his daughter off to the king of the horse lords. Come on, do 30 seconds of thinking. Whatever. Anyways, pot, uh, stupid petty <laughs> beef <laughs> quashed. Uh Amor does the right thing and uh, has a son named Elfine the Fair. Uh, so congrats to Amor on the shagging. Um, and beyond that, he spends a lot of his time going off and fighting in Aragorn's Imperial Wars. They go to Rune, uh, which is the Far East, and presumably do some fun and cool uh, genocides of the Easterlings. Um, and then he comes back home, and in the 63rd year of the Fourth Age, he summons Merry and Pippin from the Shire, and they come and stand by him while he dies. Lovely. That's kind of cute. Yeah. I like that. Arise! Arise, fighters of Theoden! Spears shall be shaken! Shields shall be splintered! A sword day! A red day! And the sun rises! So we'll dive into the movie history now. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the aesthetics to Rohan. We're going to dive into this more deeply with all the different outfits and set locations that we go through during the film. But just a couple things I wanted to highlight about uh, Theoden's look here at the beginning, Mm. or at least after he's been unsarumanified, which I believe is an actual word. Uh, Theoden's sword has a name. It's Herugrim. Uh, I'm guessing I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. And it is most, you know, you'll recognize it from the scene where Gandalf says Theoden will recognize his strength better if he grasps his old sword. And the most notable kind of design flourish on it is that the cross guard is two horses um, that are kind of facing each other. It almost makes like a little bit of a heart shape. Um, I read it as hearts the first time I saw it on screen, but then upon closer inspection, it is two horses. (laughs) Uh, 
Then the actual look of Theoden, he's mostly wearing red or maroons. I'm I'm not good with the subtleties of different <laughs> colors. It's like it's red. It's a type of red. Dark red, light red. It's a red. Um with some gold um flourishing, usually on like the gauntlets or um the vanguards and his collar and a green cloak. Um in a way it's very similar to Boromir. Boromir ha- tends mm. to have grays where the Rohirrim would have golds, um, which I think is kind of fitting in a way. Um, I can't really come up with a good thesis behind that, but it just feels right to me based on everything you said about uh, Rohan and Boromir's connection to mm. it. And then lastly, something that's notable about Theoden, but also all of the, at least, men characters in Rohan, is that the costumes are generally free-flowing, uh, which would kind of make sense for people who might need to quickly mount or dismount a horse at any moment, um, compared to how the Gondor uh, soldiers are depicted as having more heavy armor um, which you obviously you can, you know, be part of a cavalry with heavy armor, but I just feel like it's almost separate from the whole martial aspect of Rohan. And obviously they exist mostly as a martial <laughs> presence, but I feel like it just, I hate to circle back to a song of ice and fire, but they talk about <laughs> Dothraki kids learning to ride horses by the age of three and shoot bows on horseback at age of five. Um, and I kind of feel like there's just something similar there where these people are ready to be on horse at any given moment, whether it's for martial or other reasons. Mm, mm-hmm. Next, uh, something that Emily alluded to uh, in her story is Theoden's relationship as a character in the story to Aragorn. In the films, he's mostly po- posed as a foil. Um, in that, you know, Theoden's uh, kingdom is kind of fail- failing. I um, mean, he's kind of at the end of his rope, whereas uh, Aragorn is just about to ascend to his own kingship. Uh, and, you know, he's the start of a new line where Theoden's going to be kind of the end of the old line. I know uh, Theoden or Eomer still is kind of in that second line of kings of Rohan, I believe, as you described. Um, but there's definitely a bit of the old world kind of giving away with Theoden kind of passing and then Denethor later. And then we're moving into the world that's going to be Aragorns and Eomers and Eowyns and Faramirs that are kind of holding the brass together. At various points in the film, we see Theoden kind of wavering, kind of on the brink of hopelessness or kind of unsure of what to do at any given moment. Um, And then Aragorn kind of being that foil represents that hope renewed. And he often gives uh, Theoden that little push in terms of what needs to be done. I think the most obvious example is the climax of the two towers where he's a ride out and, you know, ride out and meet them with me. Uh, I can't believe I can't remember the exact (laughs) wording right here, but um, you know, he's the one who's kind of like convincing uh, Theoden that they need to ride out and take this evil head on. All that said, you know, we're kind of saying that, you know, Theoden exists kind of to serve Aragorn's character. I do like Theoden a lot in these films. Uh, I think he has some solid characterization. Um, I specifically like uh, when they're kind of getting ready for the battle at Helm's Deep. And, you know, Theoden's just kind of trying to speak to his people. He's just like, yeah, let them come. We'll t- we'll take care of them. You know, they've, you know, raped and pillaged before and they're, we'll, you know, we'll stop them and we'll stop them again. And Aragorn's trying to be Mr. Smartass. And uh, uh, technically, they're not here to burn <laughs> crops, but, you know, they're, they're here to fight people. Um and Theoden just kind of gets right in Aragorn's face. He's like, what would you have me do? Tell them they're all going to die here tonight? You know, we don't all have friends that are come, you know, the instantly we beckon for aid. So um, do I need to remind you what happened in the Westfold, Mr. Aragorn, sir? <laughs> um, I really like that bit of moment because we get to see Theoden 
be the king to his people in a way that maybe Aragorn's not, not quite ready to understand being this ranger from the north and not ever actually having held power at this point. So you can even say that serves Aragorn in a way of showing that there is um, Theoden the king and then Theoden the person, um, and that there can be a distinction between the two. And sometimes you you have to you know wear the you know wear the floppy ears to be king of the rabbits. <laughs> Um, see, I, this is it's interesting that you flag that because um, I also really like that, but it's borrowing from Denethor's characterization in the book, um, specifically with regard to, to Aragorn um, and, and sort of Denethor, book Denethor's characterization and movie uh, Theoden's characterization um, are kind of meant to be the people for whom magic doesn't really exist. Um, you know, one of Faramir's men describes Faramir as having like a charmed life, but I think that's doubly true for Aragorn and that the whole world sort of bends and contorts itself to make sure that he gets what he wants. And um, he literally has this sort of demigod um, who's meant to be doing other things, but is really kind of who's, who's really sort of only interest is making sure that Aragorn becomes king and Aragorn gets everything that he wants. And he's got all of these elves who are rooting for him and, and all of these masses of people. And Denethor in the books and and uh, Theoden in the films doesn't have any of that. And, you know, he's repeatedly told that this magic does exist in the world, but the magic hasn't ever come to help him and his people when they're dying. Um, and he lives in this sort of hard and um, uncomfortable real world um, where if the grains, if the crops don't grow, then people die. Um, and it's this sort of world where like, you know, you could diagnose it as they haven't made the right allow uh, like alliances and haven't made the right coalitions, or you could diagnose it as, uh, they, you know, weren't sort of marked out, um, at birth, um, as like sort of faded prophesized to be this Christ-like figure. And so now they kind of have to suffer in the shit, uh, for their sins of not being born as the right person. Um, and it's, it's, you know, Bernard Hill wears that absolutely beautifully in these movies, just so, so perfectly compared to the sort of aggressively American Aragorn that we get through Viggo Mortensen. Flipping over to his nephew, Eomer is structurally removed from the last two thirds of the two towers so he can be part of Gandalf's arrival at the end. It's a very simplified version of what happens in the text with Gandalf orchestrating the fight against the Uruks on many fronts, bouncing around between skirmishes. And there's also this guy named Erkenbrand, who mm. patreon.com slash nuclear bomb. We can talk <laughs> about him even more. There are pluses and minuses to both, but at least personally, uh, I like that it serves the film's ending, or rather, I like that it set up the film's ending, mm. which I love, which is Gandalf and the Rohirrim <laughs> arriving at Helm's Deep, um, because I do feel it is a triumphant moment of filmmaking or at least storytelling. Um, so I'm kind of okay with that tail wagging the dog a little bit. But of course, I am just going to apologize for everything in my favorite movie. What are you going to do about that? You don't have a mic in front of you. Eomer uh, is a presence throughout the Helm's Deep battle in the books, including fighting side by side with Aragorn. Um, the famous line from the movie, let this be the hour we draw swords together, is actually a line shared between those two and not Theoden, uh, which kind of you know, makes me want to talk about line swapping a little bit. And no offense to Carl Urban, who I think rules, and we'll get into that shortly, but I kind of love this line coming out of Bernard Hill's Theoden specifically. A very common thing in adaptation is line swapping. 
Um, and I hate to reference Harry Potter here, but it's like one of the best examples for me. And I'm thinking specifically Prisoner of Azkaban and how I really latched on to David Thewlis's uh, performance of Remus Lupin. Mm. Um, he's perhaps maybe my favorite character out of that whole menagerie of shit. Um, and when I finally got around to reading the books, which I did after the movies, you know, you've heard that one before. Um, <laughs> I was surprised to find that all my favorite Remus lines were actually Dumbledore lines in the books, but they very smartly took those lines and gave them to Remus in the Prisoner of Azkaban film adaptation because it helps build up his character. Um, and it really just, you know, you're giving good lines to a great actor um, when, you know, Dumbledore doesn't really need a whole much because he's kind of, I don't want to get into my Dumbledore theories right now, but, um, you know, it's kind of good to minimize because we got a lot of Dumbledore and obviously there's going to be a lot in the back half of the tale. So it was kind of smart to give those extra lines to Remus. And I think David Thewlis uh, delivered them spectacularly. And they're probably the only lines that really have stuck with me this far removed from that whole saga. Um, and at this point, I feel obliged to say to fuck, <laughs> give all the fucks to JK Rowling. She sucks. Uh, fuck all turfs and if you are a turf please don't listen to our podcast i can't imagine you would be at this point given our politics but you know just fuck all that but i had to use that example because it's the one that sticks in my mind word um and now that you've done that actually really interesting <laughs> chat about the line swapping i'm gonna circle back to just say something totally fucking unhinged uh which is uh, the uh, movies, and this is part of my axe to grind about the movies having some weird politics, uh, cut out the Rohirrim showing mercy to the Dunlendings. And the books, um, and I'm going to be very, very limited in what I say here, the books do have the the uh, Rohirrim showing that mercy and, and not choosing to kill them all or imprison them all. And the movies cut that out. And it, it's interesting to me that they cut it out because I think it actually would have fit with the specific bent that's like themes that the movies pick up on out of the books um and they don't include it um and i think part of the reason that they maybe don't include it is because amor does not uh choose to to show the mercy in the books uh and it's not necessarily something like a series of scenes that are particularly flattering for him um and as sort of part of this the this, the movies kind of take on um men ruler characters which is that if they're bad and assholes, but ultimately on the good side, the reason that they're kind of bad and assholes is because they were dealt a bad hand and not because they may have some <laughs> personality defect that makes them behave like uh, jackasses. But uh, more on that later. <laughs> and I think in general, a fairly solid critique is that the Dunlendings don't really matter beyond the one scene where Saruman riles <laughs> them up. Like you don't see them either... Um, you see them in that immediate raid you see right after Saruman's little monologue that we talked about last time, or uh, two episodes ago, rather. But they they aren't part of the Helm's Deep battle or anything else that we see. They functionally disappear. We only see their inciting incident or Saruman inciting them. So I think they just kind of drop that thread entirely. Mm. And there's nothing that I remember from the extended editions that does anything more with them than no, I can think of. No, not really. All right, as per usual, we will uh, mention some of the bigger Theoden and Aramir moments from the films, but we'll save the in-depth analysis for when we reach them in our proper coverage. Uh, we discussed their, our introductory scenes to them last week, which is partially why we're doing this episode this week. Um, and then uh, next time, we'll be talking about the attack on the Uruk party outside uh, Fangorn, uh, which 
is preceded by Aomer and his Aored meeting uh, the three hunters. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... <laughs> A highly memed scene for a variety of reasons, uh, but one of the underappreciated reasons uh, that this should be memed uh, is because it is absolutely insane levels of violence. Um, and the Lord of the Rings Online, which I will always talk about as basically the best game to have ever existed, in the, the, the existence of humanity, the, the history of humanity, has this deeply funny bit where when you catch up to Aomer and uh, in, in the Mark and Rohan, uh, you do have to go and see the orc the pile of orc bodies that he leaves behind and they call it like AMR's vengeance, I think. But when you go literally every character who like goes with you or who stands around it is like, Jesus Christ, this was like way too much orc killing. Like what the fuck man, calm down. And it's so obscenely funny when I like went through it for the first time and was reading through the dialogue, I literally was sitting there crying of laughing because it's accurate. And I never thought about it like that, but it is a a strange amount of violence and like, weird aggressive violence for a guy who's ostensibly on the good team i don't know why i'm thinking of that ian malcolm moment in the first jurassic park when he sees the giant pile of shit uh from the (laughs) triceratops and he's just like what a pile of shit and i can just imagine everyone who's uh who sees the pile aomer left behind reacting in a very similar manner Uh, We also have Theoden's cleansing at Meduseld. Uh, I don't know why I chose that word, but I'll just stick to it. Um, We have the flight to Helm's Deep and the attack by the wolves of Isengard. And I guess we just have all of Helm's Deep uh, to talk about. Uh, I'm not going to go into the individual moments because we could be here all day doing that. Obviously, Theoden riding out and meeting the Urukai with Aragorn is a very famous moment, as is Eomir's arrival with Gandalf. Hopping over to Return of the King, we kind of get introduced to them as kind of they pick up the scraps following the Battle of Helm's Deep and the flooding of Isengard and them saying their words of goodbye to the soldiers, hail the victorious dead. Um, I imagine they go to Valhalla after they die in Rohan. That just kind of very feels correct to me. Um, And we have the moment where Theoden's like, I didn't really win the battle, Um, you know, and he's kind of relaying this thought to Arrow. Um, Eowyn and in this moment uh, Theoden also notices that Eowyn is kind of in love with Aragorn Hurl um, yeah it's also yeah there's a lot of there's a lot going on in that scene some of that just kind of nauseates me in like weird ways like I don't like the like parallel he sets up there but the, the other reason I really hate it is because um, in the books the whole point of Eowyn's plot and the whole reason she goes uh sicko mode in uh Return of the King is because nobody pays attention to her and nobody knows what the fuck is going on with her or realizes that she has any sort of inner life at all and it's just as much about her characterization as sort of being like a like a hard to read, apparently hard to read uh, character, closed off character, as it is about pointing out that all of the men around her are fucking morons who don't care about anything that isn't war or their own power. And because of their obsession with that, have basically failed this woman so badly that her only route is literally just death. Um, and they change that. And I get why they change it, because Bernard Hill is like a brilliant actor uh, and it's good to have as many scenes as possible as you can in these movies with him but i also hate it because it has led to this sort of like theoden apologia movement and i think that's bullshit like he should be hanged by his toes 
Yeah, I got nothing to disagree with that. I, I will just say I do think Bernard Hill and Miranda Otto, who mm. plays A.O. and uh, do have a pretty good on-screen presence. I know all the dialogue between the two kind of makes you want to pull your hair out, Emily. <laughs> but all that aside, I think they do uh, play well off each other. And I, I like that Hill has someone else to really share scenes with that isn't just Vigo Mortensen, mm. mm-hmm. even though I don't have really any problems with Vigo. Um, even though you've kind of anti-Aragorn pilled me over the course of the last 25 episodes. Uh, the, de- the next big moment is the lighting of the beacons, though it's kind of more of a big moment for kindling than it is for Theoden or Aomer specifically. Um, the wood burns well, really, really well. Very cinematic. Nice job, wood. Um, and then, uh, you know, Theoden has the famous line, Rohan will answer, which we opened this episode clip with. And that leads to the mustering of the Rohirrim and eventually the arrival to Pelennor Fields. Um, I gave you a little bit of Theoden's speech uh, to open the segment. Obviously, we're going to pick it apart in full Mm. when we actually get there. Um, I do want to call out, uh, or Emily called this out a couple episodes ago, but uh, there's a part in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and the rush of the Rohirrim where uh, Eomer kind of swaps his spear handling, yeah. <laughs> uh, where he kind of flips it so he can change it from a stabbing position into a throwing position, and he basically murks a guy all the way on top of an oliphant. So and not good. only does it kill that guy, but it leads him to ride his oliphant into another oliphant, <laughs> thus killing two oliphants. Um, unlike Legolas, I'm pretty sure that counts as two. Uh, and not just one. <laughs> so this always cracks me up, right? Because that is objectively a fucking baller kill, right? Like that is a hands down monumentally awesome kill. And he immediately gets overshadowed by his sister murking the Witch King. How fucking mad would you be if you took down two like mammoth sized elephants in one shot and that was still not the coolest thing to happen in the battle? <laughs> uh, it reminds me of a late season uh, Simpsons where Apu has eight kids and all the media is ready to lavish, you know, attention on him. And then someone in Shelbyville has nine kids <laughs> and they just like pick up and leave Apu and Manchula alone with their eight babies. So <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what they were going for. I think that episode actually <laughs> released about the same time as the two towers. So Peter Jackson might've been working that into it. Who's to say? <laughs> uh, and then after, basically after Pelennor Fields, there isn't a whole lot with Theoden. Well, obviously Theoden, he's dead. <laughs> um, but then we only get glimpses of Eomer at that point. He might have a line uh, when kind of like they're sitting in Denethor's throne room, steward room, whatever it is, mm. um, where they're kind of planning out that they're going to make a distraction for Frodo and Sam to claw- cross the plains of Gorgoroth. But uh, he basically disappears other than his kind of head bow and side eye that he gives at the eye of the black gates. Eye of the black gate? What the hell? I'm crossing my Sauron metaphors here. The, um, Yeah, but you, you kind of get what I'm getting yep. at. Yeah, he just stands around looking hot, which is like fair enough. Uh, I feel like if you got a Carl Urban in a film, you kind of have to do a couple of those shots. So bimbification, it's allowed. And lastly, we'll wrap up with a little info on the actors. We can start with Bernard Hill in our actor corner, as I don't have much to say on him except this. I think this might be my favorite overall performance Mm -hmm. in this trilogy, Mm -hmm. and the films are stacked with great performances. Uh, Theoden is one of the more complex and contemplative characters, and that actually shines through in his performance from beginning to end. He walks a fine line of being kind and caring, but also stern as a king and also reluctant uh, to plunge his people into war, 
which may not be the correct book characterization, but I think it works really mm-hmm. well on screen here. Hill himself is an English bloke born in 1944 in Blackley, Manchester, into a family of Catholic miners. Uh, sorry, Catholic family of <laughs> miners. I don't think they were out there mining Catholicism, <laughs> although they could be. Who, who's to say? <laughs> Uh, Hill's early career was a lot of stage and BBC radio plays with some small roles in film and TV, including in the 1983 Best Picture winner, Gandhi, which we absolutely do not have time for you for me to give all my thoughts on that film. But anyways, what do you got, Emily? <laughs> yeah, so some of the radio plays and later TV shows that he uh, that Bernard Hill was involved in for the BBC um, are actually kind of quite culturally significant here in Britain. Although I think if you talk to a lot of the younger generation, they, they may not remember it well um, because there's a lot of sort of bigger cultural items that bigger ticket cultural items that came afterwards. But one of the plays that he was in um, was called The Boys of the Black Stuff, which later became a series on the BBC. Um, and it centers around uh, the city of Liverpool, uh, which you may have heard of uh, for <laughs> Beatles-related reasons, mostly, or the Empire, I guess, that uh, they were a part of some fucked up stuff. But anyways, Liverpool, uh, it's in the, the north of England. Um, and uh, the the these radio or these uh, plays, these shows, episode series, whatever uh, that were running on the BBC uh, called the Boys of the Black Stuff um, series were uh, written by playwright Alan Bleasdale, um, and they basically deal with uh, Britain, the north of England, um, as it's getting fucked by Thatcher in the 1980s, um, and they sit sort of very comfortably in this trend of like social realism or like cult kitchen sink dramas that that was really really culturally significant in britain um sort of kicks off in the 1950s um and you know continues on even 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 now really um but it's all sort of uh the these these uh cultural works that contribute to this like wider discussion around like masculinity and the household and domesticity um, in an age when all of these things are sort of being ripped apart from a thousand and one different angles. Um, and so one thing I want to do here is compare um, Bernard's, Bernard Hill's turn in this. Give us a job. Go on, give it. Give us a go, go on. I could do that. You don't have to walk straight. I can walk straight. Go on, give us a job. Go on, give us a go. Put the nets up as well. To this scene. Like people get all hung up on details. Like which school did I go to? How many openings did I get? Could be like six, could be none. It's not important. What is important is that I am, yes? Mr. Murphy, do you mean that you lied on your application? No. Well, yeah, oh yes, only to get my foot in the door. So the nice shit having that like. And that's a scene in the movie Train Spotting, which you may have heard of before, during which Spud, one of the cast's most depressing characters, tries and fails to get a job in post-industrial Scotland. And that first clip I paid, played for you is actually Bernard Hill himself in Boys of the Black Stuff in a now iconic line, uh, which is Gee's a job um, or give us a job. Um, and all of this is sort of highlighting the, the this long, hard trajectory of um, men in particular struggle, struggling for an employ, for employment, a raison d'etre, uh, a sort of reason to live in, in post and de-industrial 
Britain. Um, and it's all part of this sort of bleakly funny uh, series of, of films and TV shows in, in British cinema. You've got like, you know, the 66 uh, Alfie with Jane Asher. You've got uh, Look Back in Anger, which is an incredibly important play. Um, and then you've got The Boys of Black Stuff, obviously, Train Spottings. And even now, I, Daniel Blake. Um, one of the sort of more recent entries into this canon that I really want to shout out is a film called Get Duked, um, which is about uh, just a bunch of lads going on their Duke of Edinburgh trip in the Highlands, featuring Eddie Izzard as a mad aristocrat trying to gun down the youths. Um, and it is, it is brilliant. And it's sort of this walking this very fine line of uh, what does it mean to be a man in uh, a world where um, not only is being a man the most important thing that you could be, but also being a man sucks ass and the state and all of the sort of edifices of the state exist to build up a very specific definition of masculinity and then make it absolutely impossible to match up to that definition of masculinity. Um, and so Bernard Hill in particular, um, has this really incredible aptitude for playing that kind of man of the destroyed generation. And it's, it's really, really, <laughs> I would say pretty much impossible for me to look at his portrayal of Theoden and, and not see that sort of Thatcher era informed portrayal of masculinity and rulership and, and sort of desperation and desolation. Hill would go on to be a stable TV actor and get character actor roles in bigger films. One of the more fun credits to his name is playing John Lennon in a 1985 <laughs> TV dramatization of The Beatles' Life. Uh, that Beatles specifically, singular, not plural. It wasn't a thing on the full band. He would also play Macbeth on stage around this time. And while I don't think film Theoden and Macbeth have a lot in common specifically, um, I can see a lot of overlap in what you can take from one role and feed into the other. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. I've got hella thoughts on this. Um, but also not the first kind of wild, uh, Lord of the Rings cast member to play a Shakespearean role because Ian McKellen was just recently at Hamlet in Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've heard he, he does a really good turn at that, but I would kill to see a recording of that Macbeth. Uh, cause I bet Bernard Hill probably straight up fucking rocked at that. We can get to a couple movies I do know him from. The Ghost in the Darkness from 1996, starring Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas about game hunters in Africa at the end of the 19th century, specifically hunting two man-eating lions. I remember think thinking this movie was pretty gnarly at age 12 and have never really thought about it since <laughs> um, until recently, and I realized Bernard Hill was in there. I can't really recall it because Hill just wasn't on my radar as an actor at the time. We were in the middle of the Kilmerizons. We were all just big Val Kilmer fans back in 1996. <laughs> the next touchstone should be one many more of you know. He was Captain Edward Smith in James Cameron's The Titanic and was notably one of the few actors who didn't want to kill James Cameron by the end. <laughs> and I'll, I'll go ahead and do a quick Patreon plug here. Um, for my Metal Gear Solid side of things, uh, the film Titanic is actually a really big influence on Hideo Kojima mm -hmm. and specifically Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, so if we reach 100 patrons, we're going to start covering some of Kojima's favorite films and Titanic will absolutely be on that list. Right before The Two Towers, um, which um, I actually believe this film is celebrating its 20-year anniversary like just a couple weeks ago, is The Scorpion King, in which Bernard Hill played Phylos. <laughs> the Scorpion King was a spinoff of The Mummy Holy Returns, <laughs> focused on Dwayne The Rock Johnson's titular <laughs> Scorpion King character. 
I believe this film was produced by WWE, or as it was known at the time, <laughs> oh WWF. So technically, Bernard Hill has in one way worked for Vince McMahon. Absolutely wild, wild stuff. He's come a long way from Macbeth, I must say. Holy fuck. I think it's safe to say that Theoden King is his most popular role. And for his efforts, he was gifted Theoden's helm and sword when production wrapped. Uh, Bernard Hill was considered for the role of Gandalf during the original casting sessions. He's been in a lot of smaller stuff also from then on, including lending his voice to both World of Warcraft and Fable 3. And one of my personal favorite, A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones fan cast involves Bernard Hill for a character that was never adapted for the show and among the creative choices where I really felt Game of Thrones lost the narrative thread of George Martin's work. That character is John Connington, or Griff, an exiled Hand of the King who was part of Varys's Targaryen restoration plot that was all pretty much put on Daenerys Targaryen for the sake of the show. I won't go too much deeper into that, but Bernard Hill, you will be my John Connington forever. Hmm. Couldn't find much on Bernard Hill's politics, um, hoping he has a strong working class ethos due to his upbringing, but I did find out that he's publicly a big Manu fan. Wait, no, sorry, <laughs> Man U fan, or the Manchester United Football Club. Uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, that's where that, because I'm never going to be able to read that club name uh, the same ever again. <laughs> so cheers on that one. Um, so, yeah, so his politics are, from what I've been able to glean, uh, very middle-of-the-road lib. Uh, he hates the Tories, which makes sense as a child of the 1980s, but he was also like, but I wouldn't prefer Jeremy Corbyn, so to that one. Um, however, to his credit, in uh, 1984, he was a part of uh, one of the sort of more high-profile productions of The Plow and the Stars, which is a very controversial play about the 1916 uprising in Ireland. Um, and to do that in 1984, which is the height of the Troubles, uh, uh, during which time the Brits were still literally uh, dubbing Jerry Adams' voice on the BBC because they were scared hearing it might make all of the youths go full Republican. Um, that has to count sort of in his favor in terms of good politics, although, you know, uh, Liam Neeson was also in that production, so uh, don't count it too far towards uh, an indicator of good politics. Let's hop on over to Carl Urban, who seems like a delightful little actor and one I have seen far more than Bernard Hill. Urban was born in Wellington, New Zealand, his father having emigrated there from Germany. He wanted to be an actor from a young age. Apparently, uh, his mother influenced him in such a way and even had his first role at age eight in New Zealand's adaptation Pioneer Woman. He would work in New Zealand doing shows and commercials until his film breakthrough after the turn of the century. 2002 would mark his arrival on the scene. His first Hollywood role would be Ghost Ship, and later that year, (laughs) The Two Towers would come out and instantly become his most iconic role for a while. The role started just coming in from there. He would be in Chronicles of Riddick, The Bourne Supremacy, and Doom, just to name a few. He got his next big franchise gig thanks to friend of the friend of the podcast, J.J. Abrams, <laughs> as Dr. Leonard McCoy, or Bones, in the new Star Trek adaptations. Urban was a Star Trek fan since youth and was broadly praised for his performance, his, how his performance echoed that of DeForest Kelly's from the original Star Trek series. 
Going to drop in a quote here from Star Trek 2009. And while I'm here, I also want to shout out friends of the podcast, actual friends of the podcast, <laughs> uh, Elise and Matt, and their Star Trek DS9 podcast pod race, which you should listen to. I may throw up on you. I think these things are pretty safe. Pander to me, kid. One tiny crack in the hull and our blood boils in 13 seconds. Soul flare might crop up, cook us in our seats. And wait till you're sitting pretty with a case of Andorian shingles. See if you're still so relaxed when your eyeballs are bleeding. Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. Well, I hate to break this to you, but Starfleet operates in space. Yeah, well, I've got nowhere else to go. The ex-wife took the whole damn planet in the divorce. Okay, well, if you get to defend the MCU, I will defend (laughs) J.J. from Star Trek. And I recognize it is totally unrecognizable as a Star Trek. However, I saw Star Trek 2009 uh, in the year of our Lord 2009 when I was like 11 years old. And I saw it in a cinema that was totally empty. It was a massive cinema in central London. Totally empty. Me and my dad, only people in there. And they cranked the volume to like 110%. And it quite seriously blew my fucking mind. Um, But I also think that like, as you rightly say... uh, Carl Urban does do a really good turn as uh, as Bones, and I think uh, it's one of the more convincing American accents in cinema. Um, there's like a recent turn, well, I guess because non-American Anglophone actors are much cheaper to hire than American ones right now, um, but like lots of Brits and lots of Kiwis and Aussies get cast as Americans and then can't do an American accent because they just go, oh, well, I am an American, and it just sounds like shit, um, but Carl Urban does all right. Um, and uh, the other thing I want to point out is there's a fun little analog here between Star Trek 2009 or the alternate original series, I think they're calling it now, and uh, Lord of the Ring, Lord of the Rings as a film series, which is uh, things that have some potentially questionable uh, adaptational choices uh, that maybe uh, serve an overall exciting purpose. Um, I was going to dunk more on Kurtzman and Orochi, but I've decided to hold myself back from being too much of a Reddit bro right now. Uh, you're welcome to be a Reddit bro anytime. <laughs> I do I do like the the new Star Trek films broadly, uh, the first and third one more obviously, but I, I didn't hate the second one either. I think they're fine. And if you put a Beastie Boys song in your movie, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be a fan. I'm sorry. I am a very simple man. <laughs> Another highlight for me personally is Dread. Yes, as in Judge Dread, but not that bad Stallone film from the 90s. Mm. This one from 2012 is a high-octane bloodbath very similar to the Raid films out of Indonesia. It's a hyper-violent yet contained narrative and also stars another fave of mine, Lena Headey, who played Cersei Lannister in Game Mm. of Thrones. I want to throw this one out as a recommend. If you see Dread, you should watch it. Yep. More recently, he is among the stars of Amazon's The Boys, which I have not seen, but is viewed as a very strong series that challenges the general comic book narratives oversaturating pop culture. Yeah, the discourse around this was fucking crazy. Um, I've only seen the first season, I think, but I, I do like it. It's one of these things where, like, I know I, if I need, if I'm gonna watch the remaining episodes, I need to sit down and do it in a weekend, and I just don't often have the time to do that. But it was nice because you don't often get to see Carl Urban actually acting, um, and despite. Uh, the boys basically just being uh, hyper violence uh, with an occasional wink to the camera about having relatively decent politics. And he does actually do some fairly impressive acting, like capital A acting in it. Uh, and it, weirdly, oddly refreshing to to get that. Yeah, I was just thinking, as you mentioned, as like in dread, he's behind, a, he's under a helmet the entire time. 
Uh, A.O. Mayer doesn't have a whole ton. Um, and the other roles I know him from, like the Born Supremacy, he doesn't really have a character. He's just like a hitman <laughs> or an assassin. So like actually getting to see him do like some bigger capital A acting, as you like to phrase it, I think would be a lot of fun, which um, it's kind of, maybe it's shocking that I haven't seen the boys, but I watch way too much comic book content to <laughs> um, really worry about making sure I watch it all. Uh, speaking of oversaturated <laughs> comic book content, <laughs> he did play the role of Scourge in Thor Ragnarok, Hela's dumbass executioner who <laughs> wields a giant axe and two assault rifles. It's a comic, it's a comedic relief role and not much to it, and Urban does it well. But I guess I can voice this here. I don't really love how he's done in this film. Okay. Scourge was a perennial comics henchman, but not altogether an evil dude, as laid out by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and later Walter Simonson. One of the singular greatest comics uh, Marvel ever published is Thor number 362 in December of 1985, in what remains to me the absolute best Marvel comics run ever. Walt Simonson writing Thor in the mid-80s, which has a lot of narrative overlap with The Lord of the Rings because it's borrowing from Norse mythology and invoking a lot of the same high fantasy elements. Surtur, who was seen in Thor Ragnarok, is a dead ringer for the Balrog, just as an example. Hmm. In that comic, Thor has to invade Hel to es escape with mortal souls wrongfully held by Hela, and the last part of their escape is to cross the Galarbrew, the Hellway into Niflheim, Realm of the Dead. Thor was originally going to hold the line at the bridge while everyone else safely crossed, but Scourge, fighting regrets and shame, bonks Thor out and says he will hold the line instead. Armed with two assault rifles, he takes on hordes of demons and undead while Thor escapes with the captive souls. The art, also done by Walt Simonson, is absolutely beautiful, as is the narration for the moment. And though the executioner stands alone, and the warriors of hell seem numberless, not one sets foot upon the bridge across the river Gyol. They sing no songs in hell, nor, they, nor do they celebrate heroes, for silent is that dismal realm and cheerless. But the story of the Galarbrew and the god who defended it is whispered across the nine worlds. And when a new arrival asks about the one to whom even Hela bows her head, the answer is always the same. He stood alone at Galarbrew, and that answer is enough. God damn. All of that is just to say the film Thor Ragnarok lifted this moment of Scourge's last stand, but without any of the pathos or emotion attached to it, just the aesthetic. Which I get, Scourge is not a going concern for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but since we talk about adaptation and how things are lifted and changed for film a lot, I just wanted to show you I don't always just buy into what the <laughs> film adaptation tells me, and I do long for some of the context from source materials, as little as I actually voice that as it relates to The Lord of the Rings. I think I'm going to not say anything about the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, what's the classy way to be like, he was fucking Bo-Katan and now they're divorced. Sad. See you next week. <laughs> uh, Steven, if you're listening to that, leave that in. Don't let Emily, <laughs> Emily edit that one out. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which goes towards this and the other projects I'm working on. Which, Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting on Twitter, where you can find me guarding the Rainbow Bridge to hell. 
toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. But, uh, fuck. Damn it. <laughs> I thought I had such a good segue there, and then I didn't. Okay. You still got a chance to do it. We can edit out everything before this. <laughs> and the magic of editing.